This is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan read the paper on Monday, October 17th. Oh, okay. <clears throat> because it was Sunday, October 16th, was, was our 40th wedding anniversary. Exactly right. A 40th wedding anniversary. And uh, somehow we did not have time to squeeze in a podcast. Hard to believe. Hard to believe. But we didn't. We were busy. Yes. As, as part of the festivities, we took a, a little trip up to the Hudson River Valley. Which we're wont to go once in a while. We go every, every occasionally, but this was a bigger trip than normal because we... Uh, well, it wasn't a big trip. We stayed at a destination hotel. Yes. And, um, and it also, it's prime leaf peeping season. Yes. So generally we avoid that kind of... What do you hoopla. mean? We, no, no, we avoid the hoopla. We, we're into the the leaf people. We, well, we love the leaves, yeah. but we don't want to be sitting in traffic. We're, we're not big spenders. Let's face it. Tim. But we went not out big there. Spenders. And we went during prime season. We well, we to, got a bargain on a Sunday night. Was it a bargain? I wasn't aware of that. Was it a bargain? Well, I don't know. It depends on how you define bargain. Yeah, we got a reservation, but it was available. <laughs> we got a reservation. Let's put it that way. It was available. Yeah. So um, this was uh, what's the name of the hotel again? Is a Salt Hotel. What's it called? It's uh, the Hutton Brickyard. Ah, yes. The Hutton Brickyard. Right. Resort oh. and Spa. Right. And it's near what town? The... Wiggle, you were driving. Please. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. Kingston. Kingston. Kingston, New York. I'm, I do what Mrs. Google tells me to do. What do you, you know, Kingston. Exactly right. But it's really on the outskirts of Kingston. It's it's nowhere. It's nowhere. I mean... It, I, well, it's on the river. Okay. Okay. So let's put it this way. Yeah. Um, we did the pedestrian really during the yeah. during the late nineteenth, early twentieth century. Yeah, the Hudson River Valley was a hotbed yeah. of brick producers. <laughs> it's hard to put those thoughts in the same sentence, but okay. So, so and Hutton Brickyards yeah. was a big place, yeah. a big part of that. Right. Hutton bricks, yeah. allegedly, were used in buildings like the Empire State Building. I don't know and, there were any bricks in the Empire State yeah, Underneath there somewhere, I guess. I doubt it. You know, and Yankee Stadium. Again, it, where are the bricks? <clears throat> um, so anyway, I mean, it was, uh, you know, bricks then peter out yeah. later in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And uh, this particular business, I guess, um, closed in the 1980s, I think. But there are all these, you know, crazy big, you know, kilns, sheds for the kilns. Um, Wide open spaces, not worth very much money. But scenic, beautifully scenic, because that's the way Hudson is. It's on the Hudson River. That's where they decided to make the bricks. And uh, apparently before it was, it became a um, destination hotel. Yeah. It was the town's uh, skate park. Oh, really? It was just a hanging out place. Oh. Not that it was developed at all, just in the ruins. Oh. Had, they were, you know, had uh, well, it looks like a great affinity. It has a, the feel, I mean, just to set the states, first of all, we drive up there. In Poughkeepsie, we go take the uh, pedestrian walkway. We don't go to Poughkeepsie. We're on the other side, which is a town called Highland. 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 Yeah, which is not as nice, I suppose. So Poughkeepsie. the walkway over the Hudson, which yeah, is, we, we've talked about before, it's an old railroad bridge yeah, that has now become a another a destination, yes. a tourist destination. Right. So we recommend that. We, we did that. And then we came back. and we Well, did well we did that. And yeah. uh, we were not the only people doing oh, that. It was very crowded. It was 
Beautiful. Not as crowded as it could have been. Fortunately, yeah. we went to a diner with such bad service. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It was scary. Um, that we got to the walkway much later than planned. It's, it's, it's one thing. And it's a new experience. You sit in a diner and within five minutes you say to yourself, no one's working here. Well, there were people working there. there Daniel, people. don't don't be a jerk. I'm not being a jerk, but you just said yourself. The they were understaffed. Okay, that's they why the service was bad. I'm not blaming. And it took any. us a while to I'm be served. Not blaming the service. It was They're unanticipated. A a di- meal at a diner should yeah. take about twenty minutes. Right, this was an yeah. hour and twenty minutes at least. Yeah, and so, but anyway, uh, the you know going across the walkway was great. Yeah, and a couple times we stopped to take a selfie. It being the 40th anniversary yeah. and all. Yeah. And uh, people kept running up to try to help us take a better picture. But they did. Um, well, That's why not necessarily. But, um, you know, and uh, so anyway, we, we had a good time on the walkway. And then we proceeded up to a place, the, the Hutton Brickyard. Yeah. And so there we are, this place in the middle of nowhere that they built this I, you know, I Hardly say, the middle of nowhere. It's right on the Hudson River. It's the word That's of, somewhere. It was a formerly abandoned area that people were using for skateboarding. They, they put in this clever, ingenious hotel. I was going to say lavish, but it's not lavish. It's not lavish. What they do is, is they set up all these huts. They built huts, a bad word. What, what, what would you... What cabins. Would, cabins. There's cabins. One. There are no, 31 cabins. But they're not made out of brick, strangely enough. They're made out of aluminum or something. No, they're made out of wood. I don't know what they're made out of. Yeah, come on. But it they do. Wood. A, a number of them have views of the huts. And so you're in this small unit, if you will. But, you know, elegant, small unit with a beautiful view of the Hudson River from your unit. Uh, and it's all about communing with nature because you're surrounded by nature and you have big windows and you're pretty there, much there on the Hudson. Well, there's one window. Yeah. Okay. It's not like, a, but they're little teeny cabins. Yeah. You can barely walk around the bed. Okay. The idea is to be but outside. But they're very, you know, aesthetic. Yeah, for sure. And uh, they're very, you know, if you... Read reviews. People will describe it as hipster, high end. Yeah. This is us. So on. This yes, is this is us. But did you say it was written up in the Wall Street Journal? <clears throat> yes. Okay. Well, it was written up everywhere. When they opened in 2021, yeah. it was written up everywhere. It's sort of uh, very modern. Uh, is, is that fair? And uh, very modern. Yeah. And well, it it, it is and it isn't. Yeah. It, it's uh, it's you know. It's very uh, upscale. It's almost glamping, but it's not glamping. Right, right. You know, it's the closest um, thing to glamping. And part of the deal is they also um, have a, a kind of Victorian mansion right. high on the hill overlooking the brickyard that is also that also has rooms in it, and that uh, will be having a restaurant. The current restaurant is just the River Pavilion, which is outdoors. Mm-hmm. Completely exposed to the elements. Which, well, we there's a roof. There's a stone's throw of, yeah. uh, from our cabin. So we will. ate there we and ate there. we froze, froze to, to death. death. Froze to death. And they say to you, it might be cold. Might be cold. Might be nippy. Might be cold. It was like eating on the North Pole. I mean, look, it was... Um, and not unlike the North Pole, they apparently had trouble getting provisions because <laughs> Again, they were out of 
many things. Yes. It was I their mean, last you know, day. to it be fair, it was their last day of the season. Yeah. So they were shutting down. Right. Had already shut down they, they and lo- still allowed us to come for right. dinner. So it was a long time between courses, which <clears> wouldn't have been noticed. It was a beautiful view. We're right by the river. Except it turns out if you're sitting in 50 degree temperatures for an extended period, uh, you kind of freeze, uh, which we kind of did. So uh, that was kind of interesting. It made it a memorable anniversary, right? And they also... They outfit the rooms with a turntable. Right. And and a few records. Right. And you were smart enough to bring a bunch of our own I had heard about this, so we brought our own collection so we could make a stroll down memory lane on the vinyl. Yes. And and now we came away with the thought that we're buying our own uh, turntable. Because I think the stroll was a great success, wouldn't you say? Might I just mention you've been saying that for about ten years now, so we'll see. I'm if getting we it. actually end up with your anniversary gift, Tamsin. It's coming. It's coming. <laughs> it's coming. So, well, I, look what I was amazed by. You know, your records get beat up, especially if they're forty, fifty years old, and you know, with the quality of the needle and and, and all that. Um, and the records get warped over time, and yet. Notwithstanding that the record player that they had in the room was nothing fancy, nothing fancy by a long What was that time. you kept saying? This is a piece of crap, and yes. it still sounds good. It still sounded good. I mean, <laughs> it had a unit which was not a fancy label. I mean, I know the label. It's a real knockoff label. <clears> and it was a self-contained unit that had its own speakers. So those two, of course, were nothing to brag about. And yet the record sounded good. I haven't anyway, heard the association in a long time, Tams. It was a beautiful... <laughs> it was a beautiful... Setting, yeah, beautiful place. It is actually on the Empire Trail, yeah, which is a a rail trail that goes right. through New York State for miles and miles and miles. I think it's all the way up to Albany or something. Uh, so you could it's have beautiful you could biking. borrow a bike or bring a bike to do some stuff there, but. Um, you know, and they also talk about that. You know, you could go into town. Kingston is a cool town. Yeah, but it's hard to leave. It was exquisite. Yeah, it was and just trees and grasses and rocks and bricks. Yeah, a lot of and, bricks. Uh, a lot of over bricks. It well, was. I should also say that fabulous. Elvis Costello sounded pretty good, also. So, uh, yeah, so it was fun. We so had the, fun. So it that was, was the a anniversary. crazy anniversary. It was crazy. a splurge. Oh, you didn't tell me that. Okay. I'm taking it in stride. Anyway, when you see the words high end and hipster, oh boy, you got to reach deep into your pocket. Really? Oh yeah. Okay. Oh words, yeah. Words to live by. Well, whatever. Uh, so, uh, Angela Lansbury passed away. That was pretty well covered. Um, oh, wait a minute. What? Speaking of anniversaries. Oh, yes. This week, uh, we have the anniversary of Noelle Borg's birth yes, coming up. Yes, birthday's coming up. Happy birthday, Noelle. Yes. Happy birthday, Noel. So we go from that to, unfortunately, I already started with Angela Lansbury passing away. And, um, yeah, so she's, you know, by now, it has been around for quite Well, you a must have time. something interesting to say because well, we don't always cover the obituaries of people who have been yeah, covered in great know, depth. Was, in was the, it covered in great depth? Daniel, you are holding a full-page article. Yeah, that's the Times. I mean, was that on television? Nothing yes, matters. it was on, on television. television. Really? Yeah, because she's in all kinds of stuff that you don't care about. Well, like Beauty a... and the Beast and Bedknobs and what? Broomsticks what? and What kind and of person? So you're, you're suddenly accusing me of not caying about Beauty and the Beast? I, I'm shocked. Daniel, you know. Shocked. Shocked. And not to mention, uh, 
I have a list of what, movies. What is her TV show? Uh, Murder, She Wrote. I used to watch Murder, that. Murder, She Wrote. Yeah. We watch that. All right, so everybody knows her, okay? okay. Look, I'm not going to go into so all what the new thing? What, here's what what's nugget do you Here, have? Here's what's interesting to me about Angel Lansbury. Okay. So I'm glad she's, that you She's asked. wonderful. I, I loved yes. her to death. But I'm trying to figure out why and was she, she wonderful. And she did. She was the hardest working woman in showbiz. Right. I will say that. Why she did so was much. she wonderful? There was something about Angel Lansbury that came across. Because, I'll tell you why. Why? Because she was a cabbage. Well, they use the term cabbage. She said she, she described she herself everything. as a cabbage. She absorbed, absorbed everything. everything. But I don't think that's what made her appealing. Okay. Because the fact is, uh, the point that she makes about being a cabbage is that she's saying that she absorbs everything on from show to show, from gig to gig, and therefore no, 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 she no. can assume all, all these different she roles. Is, yeah. She, she can be different people. Absorbs everything from life. But that that is not... And she's able to dish it back no. out. But there was something about Ansel Asperger. She made the point that she's not about playing personalities or being a personality, for that matter. She's inhabiting a role. But the truth of the matter is, I believe that her appeal was that she actually had a personality that shone through, which was very appealing. Um, and that is that uh, she kind of had, she was just totally commonsensical. In whatever she played, she came across as someone who just had her head screwed on right. And uh, was, therefore, came across as authentic. Uh, I thought that's what really did it. And they show some, they, they write about a couple of incidents in terms of her career, um, and, which just shows that she seemed to be that kind of person. I mean, they, they show, there's one thing they talk about where she was in Anyone Can Whistle. And she goes to uh, Sondheim. Wrote anyone can whistle and says to him that she didn't really understand and feel comfortable playing the character she was playing. She said there's no there there. And Sonheim said, I don't know what to do about that. And she said, Okay, here's another thing. I only have five songs, and my co-star Lee Remick has six. And Sonheim says, That's something I can do something about. And he writes her a song. And of course, the song reveals something about her character and solves the problem for her. Solves both problems. Solves both problems. I mean, look, yeah. she's, okay. you know, she, as Jesse Green's writing here, she um, embodied the full range of human joy uh, while remaining in her own department, professional, approachable, and neatly tucked in. Here's something I can really believe about Angela Lansbury that I, I don't think too many other people would do, but the point is this kind of, this feels like Angela Lansbury. And I had heard this story before. Uh, when she met Terrence McNally, um, drunk at a party in 19, 1981, she told him, with such love and concern, as he later recalled, quote, I don't know you very well, but every time I see you, you're drunk, and it bothers me. And then after that, he uh, he stopped drinking. He took out I think she probably said it in a nicer way than you did. She may have did it, yes. done it, but you can yeah. see her doing that. Right. Okay, and here's one final thing. I mean, just to add to the point, when she was working on a play with McNally later called Deuce, a two-character play, there was a line in it in which her character says, people should love what they do. And Lansbury changed the line to people should be good at what they do. Uh, that, that's, that's pretty much sums her up to me. So um, she'll be missed. Yeah, I mean, there's also one thing about her personal life we don't have to go too much into, but at one point she leaves the entertainment business because her kids are taking the wrong turn living in Hollywood. 
she goes back to Europe and feels that they have a more stable environment there. And uh, it turns out that worked for her. I mean, they were having drug problems and the like, and she just felt that the more stable environment would help. And it did. It just sounds like the kind of down-to-earth thing she would do. Okay. So you had uh, something about a woman. Well, you gave me this article, All right. I guess, because I'm in charge of reading. I, well, you certainly read more than I do. There's no question about it. And I never heard uh, of this no, person. No, I don't think so. Uh, but uh, you read I more read newspapers, newspapers than I sure. do. That's I for sure. Yeah. Anyway, you were charmed by Colleen Hoover, who has sold more books this year than Dr. Seuss, than James Patterson, and John Grisham combined. Yeah, I mean, I mean, is, is, is she sold more copies than the Bible? I, All right. I wasn't so much charmed as stunned. Yeah. I never heard of this person. Did you? Uh, no, but uh, you know, I'm not. Uh, you know, I'm not uh, in that area. Well, I, I, you've heard. No, the point James is, Patterson. she writes a lot of different kinds of books. Yeah. She but... writes young adults books. She has a. I guess. Uh, her most renowned book is Slammed that uh, she wrote in uh, 2012. Another book I never heard of. Self-published. Self-published, and she's selling a zillion books. Yeah. She's and a person who just uh, sat in front of her computer and said, let her, me write a book. Her top-selling book is It Ends With Us, a drama about a florist who falls for a brooding, abusive neurosurgeon. As one okay. does. So she's 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 still self-publishing, but she's got books coming out with various publishers in a variety of genres. She does young adult. She does romance. She's a phenomenon. She, yeah, she's and uh, she is raking in the buck, bucks, and she comes from a very modest background, uh, a dairy farm. And she had a tough life. She was earning $9 an hour as a social worker when she started writing. And her little bits of success allowed her to, you know, um, pay back various debts and eventually stop writing and uh, hire her old boss to kind of manage her writing business. Uh, it's an amazing story. It's an amazing story. It's, it's, Colleen it's Hoover. Quite apart from the money, just the idea of... Being able to connect with so many people in, uh, in you know, a real way like that. That's the, buying her books. It's not like people are handing them out as gifts and no one's reading them. People are reading these books and they become ardent followers. Yes. And her followers, you know, uh, are responsible for most of her marketing. Yeah. That's what uh, they they promote her. Right. It's not that she has some great she doesn't need No, she doesn't need the no, William Morris Agency. She's, and no, she has, um, you know... Uh, she utilizes social media quite a bit, mm-hmm. um, and you know it's worked for her. So uh, I mean, they compare it to Oprah at some point. They say this is much different, much bigger than Oprah. It's not a matter if you put the book on the list and people will look at it. She's connecting with these readers, and they hundreds of people are saying, "Read soldiers. this book," as yeah. opposed to one woman says, "Read this book," and it becomes a hit. Hundreds of people, maybe oh, thousands. Well, of it's, it's inspiring so, that that can happen. Zillions of followers. Well, all right. Well, anyway, I thought that was amazing. So speaking of, um, what's the woman's name again? Colleen Hoover. Colleen Hoover. Speaking of uh, zillions of followers um, and being thrust into the spotlight, uh, umpires, uh, this is our baseball segment, uh, umpires are now thrust into the spotlight. Why? They're thrust into the spotlight because they have been, they have been tasked with explaining calls, certain calls in a game, in particular calls that are overturned. You, you, those of you who watch baseball know that... Is that like a new thing? 
I mean, it, yes. it, it, didn't it used to be my way or the highway? Well, there's two steps to this. One is it used to be my way or the highway, and they instituted something that they called review. So uh, to each once a game, the manager of each team can raise his hand and say, I'd like you to review that, or something like once a game. And uh, they'll review it in, in as I love to say, in New York. <laughs> so they'll always say, because there's some team in New York which is looking at the videos, and they will either confirm or overturn the umpire's calls. I mean, what's interesting about this is when they first started this, they assumed that this will prove how good the umpires were. It would only be, you know, once a blue moon that you would find a call that has to be overturned. It turns out a lot of calls have to be overturned. It's almost been an embarrassment. There are a lot of calls that umpires get I wrong. I mean, that makes total sense to me. Maybe it does. Because the umpires can't see everything from the angles that the cameras have or uh, right. in the split second and, sometimes and so it's, on. Sometimes it's a split second, but sometimes it's not a split second. Okay. People <laughs> it, make mistakes. Uh, but yeah. I thought the old theory was people make mistakes, but that's just part of the game. Right. Well, now uh, it's it's a lesser part of the game. So now yes. you have to explain yourself. Well, no, no, no. Two steps, I said. Okay. Number one, they first instituted that it could be reviewed, and, it, they, and then there would be an announcement that the call is overturned or not. Mm-hmm. Now, because it's not always clear why it's overturned, because there's a lot of things going on in particular play, the umpire is now this year for the first time tasked with providing an explanation. An explanation which is uh, often provided by the league office, at least in part. And so they have to speak sometimes. Several several sentences. So somebody else overturns it, but he has to explain it. Well, they're given the explanation, okay? But but he still has to present it, even though it's not his decision at that point. Right. Or he has to... So what do they do? They get out there and they say, well, the guy's in New York... Or he might be explaining what that got confirmed. He's not necessarily just explaining the overturning. Okay. Might be confirmed. But the point is, the ump- for the umpires, this is a new territory, and it's a challenge for them. It's, it's, a, it's public speaking. It's making yourself clear. It's also dealing with the challenge that whatever they say is likely going to uh, evoke a fan reaction. So as they say, they start talking, and they say overturn, and then there's a tremendous cheer or booing, and they have to wait until that kind of subsides before they go on in order if they're going to be heard or decide they're not going to wait or determine that the wait's going to be too long. But oh, my. The fighting, That's terribly right. complicated. I, the, I don't think it's complicated either, but apparently the umpires uh, feel that it's, it's a little they bit of a They need some deal. coaching. Yeah, they're getting some coaching. As, as, as the world is today, they're getting coaching. We'll see how they do. The other article, which was kind of interesting, and by coincidence... Uh, focuses on a guy who's been this sensation for the Yankees over the last few days, whose name is Harrison Bader, who is a center fielder who the Yankees traded for in the middle of the year. And at first, the trade was unpopular because he was hurt. And now he's their big home run hitter in these playoffs. And Harrison Bader, as some of us were aware when they made the trade, is from New York, in particular from Bronxville, uh, which is a fairly Tony suburb, which you're familiar with. And you wouldn't expect to see necessarily a professional baseball player come from Bronxville. Uh, and his is an interesting story. He, uh, he, his father was uh, general counsel for Verizon. He, he actually lived okay. in a Tony neighborhood and he had a uh, strong financial support. And he went to Horace Mann, if you're familiar with that private school. Okay. Uh, and, uh, you know, he had a good athletic career and he was a promising baseball player. But here's where it gets interesting. His, uh, the guy who ran the Horace Mann baseball program happened to have started a team called the Grays, which is, you know, uh, a club team, mm-hmm. an amateur team that would play during the summers. And that is a 
team that in their mission statement identifies as primarily made up of children from the inner city. Uh, well, it's true. I mean, uh, most of the kids in the team uh, come from uh, Queens. Most of the kids from the team are uh, Dominican. Um, and uh, not particularly well off. He's, but once in a while, they have someone from the affluent suburbs. Mm. Well, Harrison Bader joins a team at his coach's urging. And he's dealing with primarily uh, Latin kids who are by no means privileged. Uh, and it turns out to be a tremendous experience for him. He spends the summers and more traveling with these kids, playing baseball all over the place. He develops a huge fondness for these uh, Caribbean and Latin American dishes. He names a couple, which I don't know, Polio Guisado and uh, Aros Moro. Uh, he's, he's going on a great length. He loves the spices. He loves this. He loves that. He's, his lifelong friends are these kids. Uh, and uh, mostly, he says, it was a tremendously eye-opening experience. He never had the opportunity to meet people like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, his manager told him, number one, it's a great experience for you, for him, uh, to learn how to bond with people who aren't from the same background as you uh, and see another part of the world, another part of New York City, really, mm-hmm. and uh, which he embraced. And number two, he said, you know something, if you go to the pros, that's what your clubhouse is going to be like. Mm-hmm. It's going to be filled with Latin players. Mm-hmm. And uh, to the extent that you're comfortable with all that, uh, it's going to be that much easier for you. And that's exactly the way it's played out. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was an interesting Did you also learn baseball from Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Tremendous baseball experience. It's hard to say you learn baseball from them because he's the only one who's made it to the major leagues. Uh-huh. The other guys, they haven't. There's one guy who's in some minor league system. But uh, he's obviously a super talented guy. Mm-hmm. So, I right. think it's interesting. Interesting. It tells you something about those amateur teams that there's, there's a little worthwhile. <clears throat> right? All right. Uh, so, you, you foisted another I, I, you know, legal article I, 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 on I'm me. impossible. There's no question about it. <laughs> I'm imposing on you left and you, right. You, you just, you zero in on these lawsuits. Yeah. And then you say, here, Tamsin, you'll love this. I, it's about art. I know you. I but know, it, but I know it's still like. a lawsuit, Dan. I know what you like. Okay. You like so, a good fight. Ugh. A good dispute. Like so in 1984, yeah. uh, Vanity Fair was doing an article about Prince, yeah. and they commissioned um, Andy Warhol right. to do an image um, that would be, you know, in the article. Mm-hmm. Okay, and it was based on a photograph uh, by a, a by Lynn Goldsmith, a successful rock photographer. Which vanity paid a licensing fee to use right. for um, so for were, Warhol to use uh, a photograph of, of Prince? But of I mean, Prince, and and they and there are so the articles about Prince. I yes, the articles about Prince. Yeah, and so it's similar. You know, many people are familiar with uh, Warhol's uh, Prince, right, the Marilyn Monroe, silkscreen Prince of yeah. Marilyn Monroe. Um, you know, also Jackie Onassis, a lot of famous images. Okay, so he would, uh, you know, convert these to high resolution, not high resolution, but you know what I mean, Um, uh, very flat images uh, of uh, silkscreen prints of uh, these uh, photographic images and then, you know, color them, you know, doctor them, etc. And it was used in the article. And then 
Okay, so that's fine. That was paid for, etc. Then years later, when um, Prince dies, I guess it is Vanity Fair decides to use the image again, you know, mm-hmm. um, in that article. And at that point, uh, I guess Lynn Goldsmith uh, kind of wakes up and says, wait a minute, this is mine. I, I should get money for this, mm-hmm. that uh, you're using this image. And, and in one of these articles you handed me, she wasn't even aware. She says she wasn't aware that um, uh, that uh, her representation had uh, licensed the original photograph. Yeah, so she's in the dark about this. And, yeah. And, and, and there's no question that whereas sometimes, if not as a regular basis, there's been contracts okay. that allow the Warhol folks to uh, to tamper, tamper, to tinker with these images. In this case, uh, they went beyond whatever was contractually arranged. And they uh, well, it says here. I mean, this is too complicated for me. But Condé Nast, Vanity Fair parent, Vanity Fair's parent company, published a special issue celebrating his life. It paid the Warhol Foundation. Yeah who, you know, is yeah. in control right. of all his images, yeah, $10,000 to use a different image from the series that yeah, again, Warhol used. So she doesn't see the photographer. But she see. did not get any right. money so, out of that. Right. And you, but okay. you might as well, if you just leap from the facts to where this is going, I mean, at some place, uh, these, these images resign. And at some point, these images are going to be sold for a million dollars or something like that. And uh, and she's not going to get any money from that. So she's saying, uh, hold the phone here. Uh, those images are uh, derivative of my photograph. As a matter of fact, they're more than derivative. They're pretty much my photograph with just a few touch-ups touch or something like that. Mm-hmm. How is it that these become works of art worth millions of dollars? And I don't see a penny of that. I don't get it. And uh, that goes... All the way to the Supreme Court. What's interesting is that that case was before the Supreme Court just a week or so ago. And there's kind of an interesting back and forth between the Supreme Court justices about that. About, you know, whether in fact the Warhol stuff stands on its own. Right. Whether as it an has artistic, been transformed. Right. Whether it has transformed the image, added something new with a further purpose or different character, altering the first with new expression, meaning, or message. Okay. Yes. Some justices suggest that Warhol's work has cleared that bar. Okay. Um, well, yeah. Roberts says one is a commentary on modern society. It's the Warhol. Right. The other just shows what Prince looks like. Okay, so he's making not everybody decision. agrees with that. Right. I think Kagan disagrees with him, and Kagan, I think, I think it's Kagan. Who's saying really? Kind of, who are we to make that judgment as to which is, you know, one of the uh, well, Alito, I think, was um, strongest about that. Okay, maybe Alito. It's interesting. It doesn't really split along the, the normal uh, conservative versus liberal lines. I mean, it, it's there's fully back and forth here, but uh, it's not. They don't line up the way they normally line up on this. Right. And yet, there's clearly disagreement, and they, and there's some funny exchanges. And Thomas even talks about him being that. He, Thomas, being a big Prince fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it's tricky. I mean, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know how I would come down on it. But they say it has substantial implications for copyright law. 
And yeah, it's just funny because, you know, to some extent this is appropriation. Right. You know, which is well, that, it's, it's not to some extent. part of artistic production. That's what it is. From the cave age. Because you told me that and I find that interesting. So what do you mean by that? That means, you know, taking somebody else's work yeah. and uh, doing something to it. If you're Duchamp putting a mustache on Mona Lisa, you know, right. and uh, etc. I mean, that's always been you know part of art it's a commentary it's not saying it's not trying to sell the mona lisa as your own it's using the mona lisa as a starting point to say something else well you see that's that's a perspective that's not reflected in the articles i like to think that the lawyers were smart enough to to talk about that because when you well say i that, think it's different i think it, well well um paintings do paintings have copyright sure really yeah I thought it was just like printed things or... No, no, no. Paintings have, I think paintings have copyright. You cannot... Uh, yeah, you can't make a copy of the Mona Lisa and, and uh, sell a million things without paying for something. I'm, I'm, yeah, I think it's copyright. I could look it up. If they don't have copyright, you can't make close one, to copyright. You can't make one and say it's your own, but I mean, there are many, many uh, images think. of the Mona Lisa. I mean, that but that, that would have died... That, yeah, that, that would have ended anyway. Long, that would have run out. But... Yeah. Um, yeah, okay, so... Once again, we're talking about things we don't know enough about. No, no, about. no, that's no. No, you know plenty about it. Because your point actually goes right to the heart of it, uh, which is if there is uh, a tradition in artistic works to use other artistic works to create what's recognized as a different artistic work with a different level of artistic appeal and value, that's highly supportive of what Warhol was doing and having that recognized as a separate work of art. I think that's extremely strong analytically in support of the Warhol position. And I always wonder if they were on to that. Well, I think, uh, yeah, I think the Vanity Fair people should sign you up. No, they should sign you up. No, I mean, I think you articulated it a little bit better than I did. I'm a lawyer, Tamsin. That's That's your job. But I had no idea about this until you told it to me. That's the thing. And well, I, there's I, always this, this very, you know, you frequently have this kind of mess. Do you remember, you probably remember the story about the Obama poster, uh, Hope by Shepard Fairey, yeah. and uh, that that early poster that said Hope and got, you know, became so iconic. Yeah. And then there was a big kerfuffle about the photograph he based that on. Oh, I didn't know that. And there, and you know, I it went to one. court, and then the judge said. Look, uh, you know, um, AP is going to, they're able to, you know, these people are going to be able to prove that uh, this is the photograph you use. Why don't you guys just settle? And they, it did end up settling. All right. Well, you know, it was a mess, but, uh, you know. All right. Well, look, I just see this every once in a while. Copyright does apply to art. So we are talking about copyright law. And yes, Mona Lisa, whatever copyright would have applied to Mona Lisa would have run out years ago. So, um, but copyright does apply to art. I, 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 the strongest argument and the most probative argument that I've heard on this whole subject is, is the point that you made to me about that historically people have based uh, new works of art on old works of art. And if that's the case, then it seems to me there's a super strong argument for the Warhol Foundation position. Right. But what, can, what works against it, I can tell you as a lawyer, is the idea that people, as a matter of course, have made these contractual arrangements in which they explicitly... Uh, allow permission to use the work and money changes hands and there was the absence of that here 
that's strong evidence, frankly, against the Warhol Foundation. It almost feels yeah, like but, a but, 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 but if Vanity Fair paid for these images, they yeah. they commissioned these images years ago. Yeah, shouldn't they be able to use them when they I want to I use them? I, my sense of reading the articles is is that the contracts were pretty specifically for a particular use, and therefore Vanity Fair wouldn't rely on it. It's a fact that cuts against them. So it's tough. It's a close case. So um, just quickly on uh, football, because we don't want to leave football out. Two things. Uh, one is something that really just surprised me. A million years ago, when Granger and I were driving across country, we stopped in Vegas, and we noticed that they had uh, sports books, massive areas called sports books, where you could sit in an area with a whole bunch of seats, uh, almost like a very, very small movie theater, in which there are all kinds of screens up in front of you, sports events. Mm-hmm. A bunch of college games going on at the same time, all for the purpose of putting you in a position, therefore, to electronically register bets, mm-hmm. encouraging you to gamble. And uh, so it was, it, it was uh, a gambling thing for the casinos, but it was also, you know, an interesting place to sit, perhaps, and uh, have a drink and uh, participate and watch all these things. Well, things have changed. It used to be you just sat there and uh, Vegas was satisfied that, in fact, that they you would make some money in off the gambling. You wandered in and Right. Not that way anymore. Uh, what Vegas has figured out is this. Number one, that's not a good play for Vegas because they do much better in terms of gambling profits on slots and things like that than they do people betting football games because but the house taste is very consistent on slots and, and, and that sort of thing. Not consistent with football games. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they don't love that. But what they did find was that people love to sit down. And watch all these games <laughs> at the same time and order a beer and order something, almost as if they were at the game. And they're willing to pay for it. And they're willing to pay for it. And that's what this article is, is about. And the headline in the journal is, Watching Football Can Cost $550 in a Las Vegas Casino. And they are charging top dollar for people to sit in uh, these so-called sportsbook areas uh, and watch all these screens and see the game, in part because... They have, you know, all these high-res TVs all around. It's very comfortable. They have access to food and drink. And also because it's a community experience, if you will. You're mm-hmm. sitting with a whole bunch of other fans. You're watching the game at the same time. You get a table. You and 10 of your friends yeah. are there. All right, I got it. All right? It's yeah. fantastic. So, uh, and they talk about a guy. People went to see a football game in the Las Vegas Stadium. They paid $250 a seat. And then they went to the casinos. And they were watching some other college game. And they said, that also is going to be $250 a seat. And they said, oh, I don't know if we're up for that. Okay. And especially since the guys who paid. You remember that uh, Oklahoma game you saw the other day uh, in which uh, they played University of Texas and they lost 49 nothing. Yeah. They do talk to someone who paid $250 to watch that. Not happy. Not happy. That's the problem with college football. Okay. So the uh, more intellectual sports story is this. Times, quarterbacks who stand on the shoulders of ferocious defenders. It's always hard to rate a quarterback. There's a quarterback rating system. It's highly imprecise, but they try to compare quarterbacks. Who's the better quarterback? And you'll hear people say at the end of the game, someone has a quarterback rating of 120 or 140 or 99 or something like that. But it's kind of unsatisfactory. So the people who do this kind of thing have been working harder to figure out what really spells success for a quarterback or what quarterbacks do better or do less well. Uh, what are the factors that guide them to that result? And the answer turns out to be their defense. This doesn't make much sense, you might think. And in particular, the, the pass rush on the team for which the quarterback plays, which the quarterback has nothing to do with. But it turns out 
that quarterbacks have a much higher completion rate and success rate if their team is winning when they're throwing the ball. The reason that is is because they can run or they can pass and the defense that they're facing is on their heels. Whereas if they're losing, the other team knows they have to pass and it's much tougher to complete a pass, okay? Well, therefore, there's a strong relationship between a quarterback's success on the one hand and his own team's uh, ability to wreak havoc with the opposing offense because that will put quarterback A in a position where his team is leading, all right? Good defense means you'll be in the lead. If you're in the lead, you're going to be better. So they plot these results, and it turns out that a lot of people who are recognized as not great quarterback talents have great success. Why? Because their defenses are good. That's what means... So they're not great quarterbacks. Right. So you have to... But they have a great rating. Right. So if you're trying to trade for a quarterback or evaluate a quarterback, you have to discount the effect of their defense on their performance, okay. which is a new thought. I will keep that in mind right. in, my, in my future negotiations. It's a breakthrough. Okay. All right? What else? Finally, okay, there's an obituary fellow named Art LeBeau. And Art LeBeau, who was a DJ in uh, California, very successful and so on, um, turned his big contribution, one of his big contributions, but a big one was this. He was uh, doing... He's persuaded to do broadcast, broadcast, you know, playing records basically at a uh, local uh, drive-in. And uh, he would go around and he had a, a playlist, but the playlist was, you know, covered songs that were popular over the last three years or so. And when he would take a poll, he'd say, what do you want to hear? What do you want to hear? He was stunned to learn that a lot of the pe- songs that people asked for were songs that were not being played because they were on the older end of the playlist. They were by now three years old. And it turned out that a lot of people were interested in hearing that, much to his arrangement. And uh, he started uh, playing a lot more stuff that was old by those standards. And he came up with a phrase that described them as oldies but goodies. So mm-hmm. Art LeBeau, the man who popularized the phrase at the time, says oldies but goodies. Oldies okay. being a song three years old. All right. All right. So here we are, two oldies but goodies. <laughs> That's right. Right. Two oldies but goodies. And uh, time to uh, move on. Time to move on. All right. So uh, until next week, this is Dan Abuhoff. And Tamson Granger with Tamson and Dan Read the Paper. See you so, next week. All right.